Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We know we've been situated right here in Atlanta. Metro Atlanta right now is a little over 6 million people. Uh, it's becoming one of the hotbeds for entrepreneurship. We know that in Atlanta, they're projecting at about 9.5 million by 2040. Uh, somebody say bad traffic, all right? It's already bad. Bad goes to worse. Um, and we are in the seatbed of Cherokee County. Cherokee County, about 385,000 people currently. And some stats say it almost 90%, up to 90% of people in our community unchurched. So we have 350,000 plus people that are not where you're at this morning. They're not sitting in a local a fellowship or local assembly. There's a lot of harvest in front of us. And Jesus said that the harvest is, is plentiful, that the laborers are few, that God just needs not talented hands, but available hands. He needs willing harvest hands. And so this month long, we're going to, all month long, we're going to look at this theme that we're entitling sent. Everybody say sent. Now, the nature of the church is both sent and is to send. Now, I'm not saying this arrogantly, but there would be no dwelling place church had God not sent some pastors. It would not have happened. God uses people. He sent. It's in His wisdom. This is not an arrogant statement. It's a responsible, accountable statement. But just because God sends one set of people and then another set of people, God has sent many of you to be a part of that very work. But God is also sending. The nature of the church is both sent and is to send. And so I found myself in prayer, preparation for this series, I found myself saying, God, how do I move into this series without talking about what is perhaps one of the most sent individuals in Scripture, and that is the Apostle Paul. That is Saul himself, who takes three missionary journeys, who ultimately writes 13 out of 27 New Testament books. I have been rereading a book recently in preparation for the series called The Insanity of God. And it's a book about the story of a guy that um, followed the call of God to Somalia. He goes to Somalia, the homeland Africa, and he talks about how after he answered the call to go to Africa, he arrives on the mainland and everything starts going wrong. I mean, his whole life falls apart. Everything, his family, his marriage, everything's falling apart. And he literally finds himself one day staring into heaven. He lifts up his hand and he says, this is what you've called me to? God, this is what you've called me to. I love the title, Insanity of God, because that captures how we feel sometimes. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel. And many times when I've obeyed God, the insanity of God. God, this is what you've called me to? This is how this is to play out? Lord, I'm asking you, Lord, to share, and now I'm obedient, and now, Lord, this is what it, Kurt Allen, he, he writes a book, and uh, another book, and serves as a missions pastor, and he talks about after he had resigned his executive job in corporate America, he was going to go live overseas in, an, uh, in a Muslim UPG, an un- unreached people group, in the 1040 window. And he goes to a Muslim UPG, and he gets there, and as soon as he arrives, his son starts developing a medical condition that became terminal, and he wrote this from the book. I want to read it to you. Wait, Lord, this isn't what's supposed to happen. We're submitted to your will for our lives. We've sold just about everything we have. We have systematically disassembled the American dream. We've left everything and everyone familiar, and we're moving our family from the medical capital of the southeast. He was leaving Durham. Amen. Duke won last night over UNC. Tennessee also won the SEC championship last night, and we had marriage retreat, and we got church. This is about the best weekend I've had in the last three years, if you know what I'm saying. But he left the southeast capital, okay, the southeast capital, and he gets moved, his words, to a place with little to no health care and hostile to the gospel to be your witnesses. And then you do this, God? 
Listen, every serious Christian that I've ever met, I'm saying serious, Christian has asked that question at some point in their life. God, what are you doing? What is going on? What's happening here? Because God didn't do something you thought he was supposed to do and something you expected him to do, he didn't do. And so God's apparent absence has left you confused. It's left you disappointed. It's left you frustrated. It's even sometimes maybe left you doubting God altogether. Can we just start the series off on week one courageous enough to admit what I just said? Can we do that? Are we just going to sit in our seats? All good. Can we be courageous enough to say, God, what are you doing? Lord, what's going on? I want to show you a few things today of what happened in the Apostle Paul's life post-conversion that probably left him asking those same questions. You say, Craig, why use Paul? Look what 1 Timothy 1.16 says. Paul says that my conversion, that is the way I came to Christ and the way I've been sent by God, has become an example. Everybody say an example. To those who were to believe. Who were to believe. The future, that's us. That means Paul's story sheds light on our story. That means Paul was used by God to shed light on how God would use others. That is to say that his conversion becomes a pattern by which we can shed light on some of our confusion. There's an insight to his story that will shed light on our story. Acts chapter 9, I want to read beginning with me in verse 15. Now this is his post-conversion. I'm going to come back to his conversion in a minute, okay? But I want to read the post-conversion first. So we'll start back in verse 1 in a minute, but right now verse 15. God was telling, this is the second part of Paul's life, God was telling Ananias to not be scared to go and talk to Paul because remember, Paul had become the public enemy number one of the church. He had been killing Christians and he got all the more violent in the last few months. And so he is on his way to kill Christians and he falls down to the ground, a bright light shines. Uh, Lord, who are you? Who are you persecuting? You said it's the Lord Jesus Christ that you're persecuting. He's blind, he's picked up, he's led by hand. Three days blind, goes into the city of Damascus, he's there. He's had his moment with Jesus. Ananias is then told in a vision to go to him, lay hands on him. He's going to be my chosen vessel. Ananias is like, uh-uh, time out. No, this dude's on his way to kill people. What are you saying, God? Verse 15, go, Ananias, for he is a chosen. If you like to underline your Bible, you probably want an underline chosen right there. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name, Jesus' name, before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer. If you underline your Bible, you need to underline how much he must suffer. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now those two things don't seem to go together. Chosen that he might suffer. Chosen that he might have challenge. Suffering is what the enemy causes, right? Suffering is what Satan brings in our life, right? Suffering is what you get when you've done wrong, correct? Suffering is what happens when you're not obeying God. Is that right? Suffering is what God does to get your attention when you're being rebellious. Well, in the next 10 verses, you'll see that Paul suffers from the very beginning, all kinds of opposition, all kinds of hardship, and all kinds of delay. I want to give you my three points up front, and then we'll work through them. Number one, here's my three points. Number one, Paul was chosen and sent, yet he was opposed. Paul was chosen and sent, yet he was opposed. Number two, Paul was chosen and sent, yet God took many years to prepare him. He took nearly two decades to prepare him. Number three, Paul was chosen and sent, yet he suffered. This is in some ways a pattern for you, by the way. My goal today in preaching is I want to give some of you hope. Can you say hope? In regarding what God is doing in some of your lives. See, one of the most powerful forces on the planet is hope. Hope, and I want some of you to grasp hope. Hope enables you to endure things you couldn't endure without hope. Hope enables you to have make sense of seasons of your life that you couldn't make sense of any other time. 
There's a legendary experiment performed at St. John Hopkins Medical University. A researcher was trying to determine how long a rat could swim. He put the rat in the water. The rat would swim in the bathtub. They found out they could swim anywhere from 5 to 15 minutes, but at 10 minutes was the, the maximum normally, and the rat would die. They would just sink to the bottom and drown. But then he got a slotted spoon, and about at 6 minutes, he would pick up the rat with a slotted spoon out of the water for about 10 seconds and drop it back in. And if he would do that three more times before minute 10, the rat would go from being a 10-minute swimmer to a 60-hour swimmer. He went from being a 10-minute swimmer to a 60-hour swimmer with the introduction of one thing, H-O-P-E. You want your marriage and your ability to follow Jesus go from a 10-minute segment to a 60-year segment? You better get a hold of some hope. You better get a hold of the hope God has for you. Let hope fill your soul. And all of a sudden, life changed. This rat believed that there was a chance for deliverance. My purpose is to give God's rat some hope this weekend. No offense. So life won't drown you. If you're not a Christian here today, my hope is that you see good Christians suffering faithfully for Jesus and you're so overwhelmed with their joy that you must surrender. That you must surrender. You must surrender control. Let's just read the passage first, first though, verse 19. This picks up right off Paul's baptized waters dripping off his nose, his hair, so got glistened water. And now look at the scripture says, and taking food, Paul was strengthened. He's from, for some days, he was with the disciples of Damascus, and immediately, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He's just been born again. He is the Son of God, and all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who came to wreak havoc in Jerusalem on those who called on his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bound, bring us bound to the chief priest? Because Paul did. He brought him to Jerusalem bound. That's what he did. But Saul increased all the more in strength. Saul, by the way, is Paul. Saul's the greatest, one of the greatest kings of Israel. Saul means great. Paul means small. Uh, Saul the great had to become Paul the small, but we'll get there in a minute. Saul increased all the more. He increased in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, everybody say when many days. Lest you think that's just about a week, I'll explain it in just a minute. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and so they were watching gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples took him by night, and kind of like Rahab, they laid him outside the window. It just reminds me of Rahab every time I read this passage. And, and she had the scarlet, you know, rope, but he nonetheless goes down in a basket. Uh, also kind of like Eutychus who falls out a few chapters later out of the window, right? And so he's, he's dropping Paul down to the ground, the Bible says. And when he come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Verse 26, they were all afraid of him and they did not believe that he was a disciple. They didn't believe he was a disciple. Number one, Paul was chosen and sent, yet he was opposed. Paul was chosen and sent, yet he was rejected. People rejected his message. People impugned his motives. They tried to kid, ki kill him. Listen, sometimes your biggest surprise when you become a believer is that people won't listen to you. Sometimes we think when we come to Christ that people are going to accept our message. Sometimes it's the biggest surprise that people actually impugn your motives, that they doubt what you're saying, and they question your motives. I know I experienced this. When God started to do a lot in my life and redeem me February 10, 2002, I was totally, totally set on a new trajectory. I went into school that next morning, Monday morning, and I passed up all my friends that I hung with, and I went to a new group of friends that I saw at church yesterday. I didn't know them very well, but I said, you know what? I can't go hang with them anymore because I'm going to go back to doing what I used to do. And they impugned me, and they ridiculed me, and they said, you're holier than thou, and they did that for months, months and months. But I just knew that I wasn't holier than thou. I just couldn't go with you because you'd pull me down. I couldn't do that. Many of them eventually come to Christ. I know that the, the strongest, worst names I've ever been called in my whole Christian journey were, were called by fellow so-called believers. Unbelievers are not hatred. 
to show hatred towards believers in our nation. They are in other places of the world, but the worst names I've ever been called. I was at one church serving, and I was trying to attempt the church to bring transition, to embrace a new generation, and I was told in an email from someone who was very well known in the church that the blood of that city was on my hands because I was essentially bringing in the world to the church, the blood of the city. I've been called names. I've been ridiculed. I've been told that I'm in it for wrong reasons, ulterior motives, and it's always come from fellow believers. For Jew, this Jew, Paul, most of this came from fellow Jews. They were supposed to understand. He was supposed to help them see the clear reasonableness of his position. It makes sense, yet they rejected him. Some of you, you're left confused because you're a college student who's a part of a fraternity and you got born again. You went to the guys. You thought they would celebrate you, but they're mad at you. Some of you, you have been rejected by parents. Some of you, you feel a call to church plan, and your parents say, nope, it's not going to worth it. Don't do it. No money in it. You need to make yourself stable. Do whatever you can. I've been there, done it. I've, I've written a T-shirt. Don't. Rejected by the people closest to us. Rejected by the ones that don't understand what Jesus is calling us to. Even the church didn't have Paul's back. Verse 26, look what the Bible says. They were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. Where will you turn, Paul? The church won't accept you? The Jews don't accept you? Can I ask you a question, church? Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? To be criticized? To be belittled? To have your motives impugned? And when it happens, will you keep preaching? Are you ready to have people write stuff about you on a blog? Are you ready to have people continue to get on Facebook and write about how your motives are wrong? Are you ready? to pay the price for influence, which is called criticism. Are you ready? Are you ready to step out, have wrong things said about you? Notice in the next few verses how the word boldly was used and how many times the word boldly was used. Verse 26, 27, at Damascus, Paul preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Verse 28, so he went in out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Verse 29, and he spoke boldly and disputed against the Hellenists. Hellenists are Greek guys, Jews. And but they were seeking to kill him. Do you understand how important the gospel is? Is the gospel valuable enough to have you, or is it worth enough to have some bad things said about you? Is the gospel worth enough to have people misunderstand you? Listen, if you're going to love like Jesus, you will live a whole life of being misunderstood. You will always be misunderstood. If you're going to preach truth, you're always going to be criticized. My question for you is, what if Paul had not continued to preach boldly? You and I would not be here today. You and I would not be here today. Can I ask you a question? Whose life is depending on you being bold? What nation, what, what city, what country is waiting on you to become bold? What lives, what people are on the other side of my obedience to be bold even though I'm feeling challenges, difficulties? You say, Craig, why was Paul so bold? I'll tell you why Paul was so bold because let's look at his conversion. Because some of you in here, you're saying, God is, how do I know if God's seeking after me? Let me give you a sign that God's seeking after you. He's prodding after you. Acts chapter 9, look what the Bible says. This is the beginning of his life. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples. Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus that he found any belonging to the way. Everybody say way. The Christians were first called the way. I like way because way is not a destination. It's a process. That's why Jesus is not the way to heaven. He's the way to the Father because the gospel is about not a destination but a reconciliation. It's about a relationship moving forward. It's the way. It's not a noun. It's not a person, place, thing, idea. No, no, no. It is a verb. It's the way. We're moving. We're not setting. We're on mission with God. We're a part of the way. Notice what it says. And men or women that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay? 
And now he went on his way. He approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. We always heard preachers tell us that he fell off his horse. But the Bible didn't say he fell off his horse. It just said he fell. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him. He falls to the ground. And this voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now notice what it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Notice, first, Jesus takes persecution against his church. How does he do it? Why are you persecuting who? Me. Jesus doesn't see the church as an it, doesn't see the church as a building. Jesus sees the church as me. He has so united himself to the church that they are one and the same. I know you're not going to like this preaching, but let me just, let me get on my soapbox just for a moment, all right? That's going to throw Paul off. It's going to get Paul off of course because he's going to say in a minute, oh, wait, wait, who are you? I would have never persecuted someone as bright as you, but you see, there's no separation between him and them. There's no separation between Jesus and his body. There's no separation between Jesus who is victorious on the throne and the body of Christ on the earth. Here's what I want to say to us. There is no separation between love for Jesus and commitment to his church. There's no separation. There's no separation. Jesus calls the church his bride. That means you can't love Jesus and hate his bride any more than you tell me, Craig, I love you, you're great. I'd like to have your family over for dinner, but I hate that skank Meredith. I hate that skank. I say that because I talk to people in Woodstock every day that say they love Jesus, but they're only marginally involved in the church. And I'm telling you, based on the Bible and the inspiration of God's word, that you should be involved in a local church. You need to get joined. You need to involve yourself. You need to serve. You need to be a part of a local outpost for the kingdom of God. And I know a lot of consumers don't like that because they prefer fast food, one-night stand spirituality. Not all do that. I know others, maybe you're faithful to the Lord, but you've not found a place yet. I understand that. There's such complexity. But most people say, well, the church embarrasses me. Well, it embarrasses Jesus too, and so do you embarrass Jesus. And if he identifies with embarrassing weak people and their idiosyncrasies, you might as well go ahead and get yourself in line too and say, I'm not afraid to identify with them as well. You said, church is full of hypocrites. Well, join us because you're a hypocrite too. You don't always do what you say you'll do, so you're hypocritical too. So we're a bunch of hypocrites trying to be less hypocritical each Sunday by Sunday. Welcome to the club. You know how you know when God's working in your life? Here's the first sign you know God's working in your life. You become disgusted with the church. Oh, it's just so weak. I got this against her, that against her, that against her, that against her. Here's the second sign. God's working in your life. You become disgusted with yourself and no longer them. It becomes me. I'm disgusted with who I am and myself. Here's the third level. You re-enter, re-enter the church not as a Pharisee to condemn, but a fellow beggar who needs grace. Oh, I'm just like the rest of you. Now you know God's really working in your life when you re-enter not as a Pharisee to point a finger, but as a fellow beggar to stand alongside. Of. I'm preaching good. I'm preaching good. Let's keep going. He said, who are you, Lord? Who are you? Verse 5. He said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now, later, Paul uh, recounts this story in Acts 26. He recounts when he's born again. Look what he says about it in Acts 26. This is so powerful. He says, and when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, not goats, goads. Paul was kicking against the goads before he came to know Jesus. What in the world is a goad? A goad was a prod that they jabbed in the back of an ox's leg. Oxes would plow, and when the ox wasn't going fast enough, the farmer would hit it, and he would prod him, and he would kick against it, and he would prod him, and he'd kick against it, and he would prod him, and he would kick against it, and he would prod him, he would kick against it. What had been prodding against Paul? Let me tell you what had been prodding against Paul. Do you remember when his first... Uh, 
the, a Christian martyr was martyred in Acts 7, and the Bible says that Stephen was there on the ground, and they're pelting him with rocks, and Paul was standing off to the side, and, and he had seen this joy on his face, and that bothered him. It was prodding him. He was trying to kick it. How's this dude so excited that we're killing him? And he's getting prodded. Who knows who was praying for the Apostle Paul at this time, but he's getting prodded. and try, So he gets more violent, tries to kill more necks. He tries to slip more necks, but he keeps prodding. He had some unanswered questions about Jesus, but yet he was getting prodded. And so he's trying to kick against the goats. He understands that there's something a little bit more than what he has seen. He was These prods were wounding him, so he was kicking against them. And finally, he surrendered to them, and of course, his life gets transformed. Do you know one of the tall tale signs that you're being converted is when you realize that God's been pursuing you like he pursued Saul. Paul had the prods against him. Some of you, you right now are getting prodded. You've got unanswered questions about life, death, God. You've seen the joy in a Christian's life that's suffering with cancer at your workplace, and you don't know why they keep on smiling. You don't know why they keep on, and it, it bothers you, and it's prodding against you. You look at people, and you understand, man, love in the Christian community. Why do they love more than we love in our own blood family? Why do they do that? Why are they committed to one another? And sometimes, listen to me, those goads are painful. And if you resist them and kick against them, they're painful. Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, was an atheist literature professor at Oxford. and He was one of the greatest minds, brilliant minds of our day. I think mere Christianity should be required reading to enter heaven. And uh, I'm just kidding. When he comes to faith in Christ, one of the things he wrote about a lot after that was how he could see God had been pursuing his whole atheist life. This is his quote. Sometimes it was really painful. He said, I called myself the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. I was drugged into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance of escape from this Jesus. That didn't make our C.S. Lewis quote boards, did it? That's what he said. In the voyage of the Don Treader, Chronicles of Narnia, Line, Witch, and Wardrobe, Caspian Sea, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes, the voyage of the Don Treader, he talks about the story of a guy who's the main character named Eustace. Eustace, E-U-S-T-A-C-E, Eustace is one of the main characters. He's this young boy who developed an evil heart. His heart got so evil that it would manifest itself in a dragon. So this young boy became a dragon. And the dragon, of course, is a hardness of heart. And so he wants to escape being a dragon to go being a son again, to being a child. So he goes to Aslan. Aslan's the lion who represents Jesus. And Aslan the lion, Aslan the lion looks at him and says, hey, I want to lead you to a, a pool full of water. I want you to bathe in a pool full of water. And Lewis writes this in Eustace's voice. Most literary scholars say this is Lewis talking about his own experience. So he's telling you what he did as an atheist. Can I read it for you? The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain. But the lion Aslan told me I got to undress first. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and Instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started to peel off beautifully. In a minute or two, I stepped out of my skin, and I looked back, and I could see my skin, my dragon skin lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bathe. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that the skin on my feet was hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as it had been before. So Eustace repeats the process. He tears off his skin again. And as soon as he puts his feet in the water, he becomes scaly again. And he repeats it a third time. And he continues to repeat it, and the scales would keep coming back. So he's getting increasingly despairing. So the, he said, then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. 
He said, I was afraid of this. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just laid flat down on my back and let him do it. I just laid down and, 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 and green pastures and let the shepherd get on top of me. I let the lion get a hold of me. I, I laid flat on my back with no more ability to do it myself. And the very first tear, he said, was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. He said, the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, I thought I'd, I'd peeled my own skin off. Only then, it they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught a hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath that skin that I knew skin I had on. And he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all of my pain had gone. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Oh, that's what's happened with some of you. I know it's painful. I know you're trying to bathe yourself. You've tried self before, and he's whipping skin away from you. I'm telling you, it's not. I've been there. I know. I know. You don't have to try to convince me. It hurts. I know. You get prodded long enough until you get the lion's claws down in your heart, and it starts ripping from you until you can no longer trust in yourself and your ability and your ways and the, the, the ingenuity of man to try to make it happen. It's hard. you got to lay flat on your back and let the lion hold you. you got to get flat on your back and let the lion get the lion of tribe of Judah and his claws and go deep down and tear away the old man and tear away what was not supposed to be there. It's painful, but it's not punishment. It's not because God hates you. It's because he loves you. It's, it's not because God's trying to pay you back. He's trying to bring you back. It's not retribution. It's restoration. It's God coming to you and saying, I want you to be mine. Are you feeling those goads? Are you feeling the goads? Are you feeling the goads? Are you feeling? And if you're listening, my question is for you. The line has a hold of you. Woo, the lion's got a hold of you. I want to be held by the lion. The lion's holding you. The lion. What is it that God would be asking you to do? That like Paul, even though you're chosen and sent, you're getting rejected. I want to tell you there's some things important enough that they're worth extreme actions. Is the gospel not one of those things? Is the gospel worthy enough to you to be mocked and be the punchline of your family jokes? I think so. I think so. I just declare, Lord Jesus, would you right now hear my heart? Would you give us at Dwelling Place Movement, would you give us people that would learn the word of God and study to defend the faith, who can dispute like Paul and yet who can withstand the mockery and the, 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 the wrong insults and impugned motives from other people and yet still persist in Jesus' name? Be who God's called him to be. Number two, Paul was chosen and sent, yet God took nearly two decades to prepare him. Two decades. Something you don't immediately see here, but I got to show you by cross reference. There's a lot of time that passes in these verses. Look at verse 23 with me again. After many days he had passed, or had passed, he escaped from Damascus and went to Jerusalem. That's what the Bible says that after many days. How long is the many days? The many days is three years before he makes it to Jerusalem. How do you know? You making that up? History? Josephus? No. Straight out of Galatians. Look at Galatians 1 15 through 18. This is so powerful. But when you when he who had sent set me apart, that's God, before I was born and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone. I didn't go tell my pastor. I didn't go tell the apostle when I got converted. Here's what he says. The Bible says in the next verse, verse 17, 
nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. I didn't go to Jerusalem immediately when I was in Damascus and blind, got my sight back in and eyes came to me. No. He said, I went away into Arabia. Arabia is a desert. And I returned again to Damascus. Then after how many years? How many? Three years. Many days in verse 23 is three years. After many days, three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Cephas, Aramaic, Peter. That's all it is. And remained with him 15 days. Three years passed before the apostle, or the, before Paul met the first apostle. Three years passed before he met the pastor. What did he do during those three years? We don't know. Spent time with Jesus in Arabia. Led Jew after Jew one by one to Jesus Christ. Led one after the other to the saving knowledge. And then after three years, he finally met the pastor. He went to church in the desert for three years. Finally comes into Jerusalem and meets the apostle. And then he left again. Craig, how long did he leave? A couple months? 14 years. Okay, you making that up? Nope, straight out of the scripture. He leaves for 14 years. How do I know that? Paul explains in Galatians. And after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. What happened during those 14 years? Again, we're not sure, though we get clues in his epistles. I told him in the early gathering, clear up the thought. Epistles doesn't mean wife of the apostles. Epistles means letters. I was asked that question on multiple occasions. Epistles is letters. It's his letters he wrote. It's Paul writes 13 out of 27 New Testament books. Those are epistles, letters he wrote to specific regions and churches. What happened during that? He gets some visions during those 14 years. Let me explain um, one of those visions he gets. This is what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 11, 24, 25, 26, 27. Notice what the scripture says. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Craig. How do you know that that was in those 14 years? Because the second half of the book of Acts, he was persecuted by Gentiles. Gentiles don't keep the law. Jews did. Do you see it? Minus one, that means 39. They would have broke the law if they'd have done it. So all of this happened at the hands of Jews, which is the first 14 years. You see that? So they five times at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's not the stone that we do as teenagers today, okay? That's a different kind of stone. And this is taking rocks and you are stoning them, all right? You're not trying to get over some pain or challenge. This is, and, and three times I was shipwreck. Listen, how many times you got to get shipwrecked before you go to your pastor and say, hey, me and uh, ships are not a part of my mission experience anymore. I mean, like, you know, I find, I find people won't get on a plane to go on a mission trip. This dude got on three ships and shipwrecked every single time, and he keeps doing it. Night and day, I was adrift at sea, he said. On frequent journeys, I was in danger from rivers. Look at that. In danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, da- did anybody get this kind of gospel when you first came to Jesus, the danger gospel? Or did you get the safe tip through the lilies gospel? I don't know which kind of gospel you got. Danger in the valleys, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. You want to never make the mistake of asking Paul, how are things going, pal? <laughs> But this guy would have had an awesome blog. His Facebook feed would have been amazing. Imagine his Facebook live videos. His, autobi- his autobiography would have been called My Worst Life Now. <laughs> Went right over your head. Now, Craig, where did that happen? Most of that happened in the little white space between verse 26 and 27 in your Bible. It didn't even happen in the black letters. It happened in that little 10 indentation paragraph on Microsoft Word. In the space, single space, half space between your lines, that's where all of this happened. 
between 26 and 27. Because after verse 27 of Acts 9, Paul fades out of the whole context of Scripture for Acts 10, Acts 11, Acts 12. He didn't come back till Acts 13. You say, Craig, what happens? He's given his first official assignment in chapter 13. Here's what we know. Yes, there are all kinds of opinions, all kinds of commentaries that, that, that debate of what happened exactly when. But here's one thing that everybody agrees on. There were at least 17 years between the time God called him in Acts 9 and when he's officially commissioned as a missionary in chapter 13. God took a minimum of 17 years to prepare him. And I'm sure he's saying, God, why are things moving so slow? I'm ready. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play today. Put me in, coach. I mean, this is what he's saying, right? Like, would you you throw? And listen, that kind of delayed preparation is so common in Scripture, I would say almost it's standard of God's call. God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt. Did he put him with a staff and go into Pharaoh? No, he put him on the backside of a desert called Midian for 40 years to tend sheep. David was anointed by God to be the king of Israel. What did he do? He get a website, crown on his head. WWW, look at me now. You weren't. You didn't think I was important enough to bring me in the house when my other seven brothers came in, but look at me now. I got the Samuel anointing my head. I got the oil dripping down my nose.com. No, he didn't do that, did he? What did David do? He got sent back out into the pasture to shovel sheep dung. Later, when he got his first big break in the palace, what did he do? Did he get a throne? No, no, what he did, he got called, uh, accused falsely, and he went on his run for a fugitive for 10 years in the caves of En running from Sacco Saul. That's what he did in the preparation. God told Joseph... He was going to use Joseph to save Israel. What did he do? Did he send him into Pharaoh's palace? No, to save him, he sent him off into slavery and prison for two decades. That's what he did to prepare him. God called Elijah to stand as a prophet before the nation of Israel to keep them in the time of great famine. What did he do? Did he put him and he give him a microphone, put him in a big arena like Billy Graham? No, he told him to go down to the brook Cherith. Cherith in Hebrew means to cut down. He had to cut him down so he could stand him up in front of the nation. You got to be cut at the ankles and your Achilles come out from under you till you're flat on your back until you realize the surpassing greatness of the call of God is his glory and not your capability, your talent or your ability or else you'll steal glory from our God who is so glorious. He cut him down. He cut him down. He, he, he literally cut his legs out from under him. Moses, 40 years. David, 15 years. Joseph, 20 years. Paul, 17 years. Are you really complaining about how long God's taken with you? It's been six months. Been eight years. Billy Graham, who laid to rest this week, who's with our Lord. If I had to do it over again, he said, I would spend more time in spiritual nurture, seeking to grow closer to God so I could become more like Christ. I would spend more time in prayer. I'd spend more time studying the Bible and meditating on its truth, not for sermon preparation, but for Billy Graham's life. Don't waste your white space. That's the title of the message. Do not waste your white space. I know it sucks. I know you're ready to get in the game. I know it. Preparation is no fun. I know it. But your level of preparation in the offseason determines your level of performance on game day. And you must understand that you cannot waste the white space. You cannot waste the white space. Listen to me. I'm already, coach. Put me in. I've got more. I want more. I got dreams. God does his best work. In the white space. He's preparing you for that which he's already prepared for you. And he doesn't train in an arena. He trains in a wilderness for 17 years. He doesn't train in front of people. He trains on the backside of a desert. It's hard, I know, but it's where God teaches you. I know it's hard. Some of you right now, the white space of your life is singleness. And God's using your singleness to prepare you for what he has for you. Some of you right now, it's the white space is obscurity. And God's using your obscurity to prepare you for what he has for you. Some of you right now, God's using the white space of of, of maybe maybe somebody who's listening today, the remainder of a prison sentence. And yet, 
God is using the white space of a remainder of a prison sentence to prepare you for what God has for you. Listen to me. I want you to hear my heart in this. I have spent most of my Christian life trying to run out of the white space to the time when God says the next words. And it's the biggest mistake of my life because God was trying to teach me between the period and the next capitalized letter of who he was. The history of the world and your story are being written through the same finger. Don't waste the white space. Don't look for the author to start typing again. Just be okay in blank space. Be well prepared for what God has for you. Be well prepared for what he wants to do in and through you. It's the white space. The white space. Suffering. Number three. Paul was chosen and sent, yet he suffered. Paul was chosen and sent, yet he suffered. What do you mean, Craig? If you had to choose one word to characterize those 17 years in Paul's life, you know what that word would be? Suffering. Suffering. Why? Why would it be that way? Because that's what God said. What did he say in Acts 9.15? He's a chosen instrument of mine. What does he say? And I will show him how much he must what? Suffer for my name's sake. He's my chosen instrument, and I will show him how much he must suffer. Listen, suffering is one of God's primary training tools for his people. We don't make light of suffering, but I'll tell you, if the church of Jesus Christ is going to survive and move forward in our Western world, we better get a robust, developed understanding and theology of suffering and not tiptoeing through the tulips and easy believism, that you believe Jesus and all things will be perfect in your life. We better, we better reject it. We better reject it. Suffering. Suffering doesn't mean something's wrong, hardly. It means, actually, he's preparing you. You know the word instrument? Leave that verse up again. He was a chosen instrument of mine. That word instrument is the same word used in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, where Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What is it, Paul, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us? What is that? Vessels have no power on their own, do they? They have no value on their own. The only time a vessel is powerful or useful is when there is something in the vessel. That is that which fills the vessel makes the vessel useful. Up until his conversion, Paul saw himself as a valuable, capable tool for God. The problem is God doesn't want to use valuable, capable tools in and on their strength. That's not what he wants. He wants to use available, weak vessels so that his power and his glory might be manifest through us. You don't believe this? Just get a little bit of pride and something that you think you got good. If you got mental strength like me, I spent years of my Christian life thinking my mental strength is where it's at. You know what God did this last year? He took every bit away from me, and I thought I was losing my mind. I thought I was going crazy. I thought I wouldn't make it through another day, another moment, and yet God in those moments is trying to get you to see that I will not let any flesh glory in my presence, and number two, I want the surpassing greatness of my glory to be used through you. Saul the mighty needed to become Paul the small, so he took 17 years and he humbled him to break down Paul's confidence. So if God's breaking down your confidence, whew, just lift up your hands and surrender. If he's breaking your self-confidence, there's a tribe in Mesopotamia. It's famous for making pottery. I'll show you a picture in a minute. They would make their pots. This is interesting. Instead of making this awesome pot and using it, they would grab a, that pot and they would pray, place it over a big rock. and They would shatter it on the rock and it would shatter into a thousand pieces. Then the Mesopotamian culture would get uh, uh, gold and they would melt it down. 
Then they would take the pieces of the pottery and they would use the gold as the adhesive so that the value of the vessel and the pottery is exceedingly exceedingly more than the value it was being unbroken. That's exactly what God is doing with you because God will not use unbroken instruments. He won't do it. He breaks us. He shatters us. And then he takes his liquid blood, not gold, and puts us back together. And pieces the pieces together that his light might shine gloriously through us. When I read Paul's epistles, I would think, Greg, that I would read a man like, oh, I'm powerful. But I read things like he's the least of all apostles. I read things like I'm the chief of all sinners. Where did he learn that? Through his successes? He learned them through his suffering. Remember this statement, A.W. Tozer? It's doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. It is doubtful whether God can bless you greatly until he's first allowed you to suffer deeply. Or I got one for you. You ready? It's in your card. If dependence is the objective, then weakness is your advantage. I'm going to say it again. If dependence on God is the objective of God for you, then your weakness is your personal advantage. You just fast-tracked to get to the goal. I tell people all the time, you get broken up, your heart's shattered. All it was was a Kickstarter for you to be used by God. He break your heart, honey. All it is is a Kickstarter for God to send you straight into brokenness to be useful for the kingdom. That's the way it is. It's brokenness. God will not despise. God will in no way cast out. Suffering's also where God purifies your heart and he strips you of idols. You don't, you don't get stripped of idols in success. Abraham, what did he do? You're going to be the father of many nations. He left everything to follow God. God told Abraham, if you followed him, I'll make you into a great nation to bless the world. The problem was that Abraham was 90 and his wife was 80, and they were sterile. And understandably, they'd given up hope. At that age, even the blue pill don't help nobody. Okay, when you're 90 and 80, ain't no, blue, ain't no medicine going to help. Ain't got no in vitro fertilization. So here he is, feeling hopeless. But God kept his promise and gave him a son named Isaac, didn't he? The son Isaac was the most precious thing to Abraham. Abraham's greatest earthly treasure was Isaac. Do you know what God reminded me of this week? Isaac was not only his greatest earthly treasure, he was the locus of all of his future hopes. All of his future hope was to be a father, and the one hinge point for all those future hopes was the one thing God asked him to kill. <laughs> I'm laughing, I'm laughing to keep from crying because that's what, that's what God does. He, he takes the only thing he's given you as a gift to become the hinge point for the future he's calling you to, and he asks you to surrender and kill the very thing that he blessed you with. He's asked you to put on the altar the very thing that is the hope and hinge point and entrance ramp to all that he's going to use you in the future. That's what God does. And he tells him, surprise, I want you to take your son up on Mount Moriah and kill him. And Abraham said, did I do something wrong? What's going on? What, what, what happened, God? I get mad when I read Genesis 22 now. You know why I get mad? Because God doesn't give him one explanation, not one time. He don't give one word of explanation. He just tells him to take his son and kill him on a mountain. God gave no answer. Abraham obeyed. He's got the knife. He's ready to slay his son in the chest, and the angel says, Abraham! He doesn't do it once. He does it twice. Why? Because when he called him, he only said once. Go read it. But when he was so focused on God's will, he had to call him twice because he was so fast good preaching too. He, he, puts his, he puts his knife up. He says, Abraham. He doesn't get him the first time. He says, Abraham. And he gets his attention. He says, oh, look, look, look. I know that you love me. Look, there's a, there's a bull called in the, the, the thicket, the bulrushes. And he had provided. And then what did he say to Abraham? He said, now, Abraham, I know that you love me and you prioritize me or depend on me more than anything else. Is that what God's doing in your life right now through suffering? 
Is your suffering currently used by God to be very clear to you to determine who you're really depending on? You see, sometimes I think we do wrong, and I think we really do wrong when we try to find a silver lining in everything. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't get into medical school at uh, Emory, but I got into medical school at uh, Duke, and I found my wife at Duke, and so God's rejection for Emory was to get me a Duke to find my, and we try to find whatever's wrong, we try to find the silver lining. I think that's wrong because God, and many times, do you realize he just does what he does in our life to prepare us for himself, not for a spouse, just to prepare us for himself, not for anyone else, to prepare us for himself, not any other. So it's wrong when we try to find the silver lining and everything wrong. Why don't you just trust the superintendent of your life? Distrust. God, you're faithful. See that phrase, I'm almost finished. He's a chosen instrument of mine. Look at verse 15. God, I love this. He's a chosen instrument of who? Mine. Listen to me, church. He wants your heart to belong fully to him. He wants you to fully love him. He wants you to trust him. Listen to me. God calls you first to himself and only secondarily to a task which means what God is doing in you is more significant than what he's doing through you because we glorify God not by what we do for him but by who we become in him. I'm gonna reverse and say all those three things again. God calls you first to himself and secondarily to a task. Why? Because what God is doing in you is just as significant as what he's doing through you because we glorify God not by what we do for him but by what we become in him. And some of you right now, he's preparing you for himself through singleness. Some of you, he's preparing himself through your pain. Some of you, he's preparing you for himself through disappointment or through your obscurity. So just stop fighting God. Would you stop kicking against the goads and let him lead, let him prod, let him lead you. He's chosen you for himself. Tim Keller says the most painful times of our lives are when God is taking out our most cherished idol. And that's why I tell people all the time the most painful times of your, the most wonderful times of your life hurt the most. That's gospel truth. The most blessed times of your life hurt the most. They hurt. But he's chosen you for who? For himself. Sometimes it's not about you at all. Everybody ever read Job with kind of a vindictive eye? Job suffered for 35 chapters and God didn't tell him one reason why he's suffering. It's like, throw the dog a bone. And we read Job 1 and 2, but did Job read 1 and 2? Was Job in the heavenly presence when God spoke to Satan and said, Satan, you ready to tempt somebody? God said that? Yeah, go read it. Hey, Satan. Go, go, go tempt my servant Job that he might be found faultless. God allowed Satan to tempt Job, not for Job's sake, but so that God's heavenly name would be praised in the heavenly host. And for 35 chapters, he has no idea why he's going through what he's going through, but yet he suffers greatly and God bless him. It ain't like find the silver lining, Job. God didn't like your first seven kids, so he's gonna kill them to give you seven better. No, don't try to do that to God. Here's what you do. Just say that God, it's not about me and whatever I'm going through, I'm not in the heavenly, heavenly language and I'm not in the place when you had this little meeting going on and I don't know why I'm going through what I'm going through, but if I'll suffer rightly and righteously and live upright in this generation, it would be to the praise of your glorious name, God. It would lift high your glory, Jesus. You might be exalted through my story, exalted in the earth. Let me tell you, the biggest mistake we make, we demand to always understand. 
We think God is like a contractual God. God, I'll suffer for you, but you've got to tell me why, okay? Just tell me ahead of time. I'll suffer for you. I'll take about a three-month stint here, but I just need, to tell, I need you to tell me in advance why it's happening. God says, nope, you've got to trust me. Remember the story I told you when we launched the church? There's a little bird flying south. He's going for the winter, but he's a bad planner, so he gets off late, and he gets in a bad, bad snowstorm, and the storm is so bad, the ice gets on his wings, and now his, ice, his wings are freezing up, so he... He can't fly. He went down for a crash landing. He couldn't get back up. He thought, great, now I'm going to freeze to death. But suddenly a cow comes along and takes a dump on him. There's no way to say that politely, so I'll just say it. He comes and uses the restroom on him. And he's thinking, oh, this has gone from bad to worse. But then he realizes the manure is warming his wings. All of a sudden the frost is coming off his wings. So he gets so excited that he starts chirping and singing. But the chirping and singing attracts a cat who comes along and eats him. <laughs> There's three lessons from that story. Number one, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Number two, not everyone who digs you out of your manure is your friend. And number three, when you're in manure in a difficult place, sometimes it's helpful just to keep your little chirper shut and just wait it out. Just keep your little chirper shut when you're suffering. Just keep your little chirper shut when you're in a difficulty. Just keep your little chirper shut. Just close your mouth. Trust the Lord of your life. Just trust the superintendent who superintends all things for your benefit. Just keep your chirper shut and allow God to use whatever you're going through to conform you to the image of Jesus. Conform you to what he has for your life. Conform you to what he wants to do in and through you that will blow your mind. Paul was chosen. Say chosen. I want to reflect on that word as I close. Come on, team. Because it's a key to grasping everything else. This concept of being chosen is hard to understand. I'm not going to lie. It raises a lot of difficult questions, but it's easy to look at Paul and realize that he was chosen. Yes? Was Paul looking for Jesus? Was Paul on a divine quest going into every library trying to answer all of his unanswered questions? Was Paul on a spiritual journey? To discover in him whom he had believed. No, he hated Jesus. He was running away from Jesus. He was destroying Jesus. Jesus knocked him down in the wilderness and Jesus chose him. Your conversion may not have been that dramatic, but the same patterns were at work, 1 Timothy 1.16 says. And your, if your heart belongs to Jesus and you're sitting right now, it's because he chose you. He chose you. Did you hear me? He chose you. If you belong to Jesus right now, it's only because he chose you. He chose you. Now, again, I know that realizes some, I realize it raises difficult questions. If God chose me, do I not have free will? Yes, you do, the Bible says. If God chose me, why doesn't God choose everybody? We could spend for the next 2,000 years like they've spent 2,000 years debating. I'm not smart enough to do that, but let me tell you something. I know two things. I put them in your car. Two things I know about chosen. Number one, God doesn't owe mercy to anyone. So let's stop lecturing God on who he should choose and why he should choose and who he shouldn't. Let's get away from the pulpit and the podium and step over and let's bow before him and worship him for choosing us. Let's don't lecture to God about who he should choose because he owes mercy to no one. And number two, this doctrine, the sweetest doctrine of my life is knowing that God chose me. The sweetest doctrine of my life is knowing that God chose me. God picked me. You say, well, how do you know you're chosen? Because I believe in Jesus and I love Jesus. That's how I know I'm chosen. And the scripture says there's no way I can do that apart from the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say the Lord is, Jesus is Lord except for the Holy Spirit. 
Philippians 2.13, it's him to, who will do and will according to his good pleasure. John 1.13, he gave power to become children of God. Ephesians 2.9 says even the very faith that you have was a gift from God. That's why you're chosen. That means I'm here because there was no good in me. I'm not here because there was a little bit of good in me. That's Star Wars, not gospel. You understand this? Jesus didn't go around the Galilee shores and say, oh, there's a little bit of life left in him. Let's resurrect him. There's one class of dead. It's called dead. It's called dead in sins. There was no good thing in you. There was no good thing in me. And yet God resurrected us. Yet God made us brand new. Yet God made us alive. God brought us to himself. And here's why that's comforting me, church. If I didn't begin to follow God because of my goodness, then God's not depending on my goodness to keep me following him. My God, that'll preach. If I did, if I didn't come to God and I didn't begin to follow Jesus on February 10th, 2002, when I had no idea who and what I would become in his will, I had no idea the twists and turns and the thrill and the awesome and the glory of being a part of his joy and being a part of his kingdom. If it didn't depend on my goodness then, then God is not up in heaven waiting on my goodness now to keep me following him. The lion's got his claws around me. The lion's upholding me. The lion's going to continue to lead me. The lion's going to continue to be faithful to me if it was my good moment in which I found God what would happen to me in all my bad moments but it wasn't my good moment it was in my worst moment it was in my lowest moment it was in my dead moment and one thing I learned over and over is the flesh is evil it's holy evil there's no good thing in the flesh if God lifted up his hand off of me right now I would be the most rebellious sinner on the planet if God lifted up his hand off of me it's his spirit it's his anointing it's his love it's his power I have this assurance that he who began a good work in me shall be faithful to complete it people say Craig I let God down you can't let God down you were never holding God up he holds you up there's no way to let God down that's a metaphysical impossibility you were holding God up no sir God's holding you up the line's holding you up he's restoring you he's strengthening you and when you can't hold on to him he'll hold on to you when your hands got butter on them his hands don't have butter That's a good sermon title right there. His hands ain't got butter. Always happens when I'm preaching. Listen, I don't know all the answers to the doctrine. But what I knew, know is this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. To save a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I didn't find myself. I was blind, but now I see. I couldn't give myself sight. I didn't go to the optometrist. Oh, my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's might. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose the dungeon, flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose. I went forth and I followed thee. The fact that God chose Paul shows us that he's in charge of the world evangelization process because he took church public enemy number one and made him premier apostle. Let me tell you, dwelling place, we don't, God doesn't need our creativity for how to plant churches. He needs our obedience to listen to where he wants us to go. He's in charge of the world evangelization process. It ain't no leader. It ain't no pastor. It ain't no president that's in charge of the, of the, of the waters as, as the waters cover the earth. So the knowledge of the Lord shall fill the earth, the Bible says. God up in heaven today thinking, whoa. We were premature with this every tribe and nation thing. Didn't factor in Putin. Forgot to put in Putin. I, put, I forgot to put in the fundamental Muslims. The fundamental Muslims, I forgot to put them in. We're just, no. God's in charge of it all. Every bit of it. And when you go outside tonight and you feel spiritually sterile right now, 
Did you look up in that sky and realize that a man who was physically sterile looked at the exact same stars and God said, I'll bring an abundance of a nation out of you and you are sitting here today as fulfillment of that promise. And if you're at a place where you're spiritually sterile and there's no fruit coming, you step outside tonight and you look up your face to heaven and you look to the God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and say, just as you were faithful to them, you'll be faithful to me. Why did God put you at your work so you would keep preaching the gospel? God can make God can make worshipers out of rocks, folks. He can make worshipers out of rocks, much less hardened hearts. He can, he, can, he can make worshipers, so just keep preaching. Even if they mock you, you keep preaching. And sometimes, all Paul had to hold on to was that. When he died, he was executed by Nero. Do you know this? 64 AD. His head on the chopping block. And half the church thought he was a hero, and half of them thought he was a charlatan. They thought he was a heretic. Did Paul think his life ended in spiritual victory? No. For all he knew, it was death. It was defeat. And his head sat there, and he chopped off his head. But do you know what? Nero's empire has crumbled, but we still reading books and talking about the Apostle Paul. I don't care what you feel like your life looks like a loss right now. I don't care how you perceive it to look right now. If you're obedient to what Jesus has asked you to do, God can bring life. God, listen, I told an early gathering, we, do, we name our dogs Nero, and we read, we read Paul. You know what I'm saying? Like, Nero, he's not even around anymore. But we read in the books from the Apostle Paul, and that's what he held on to. Does it seem like you're losing right now? Hold on. Hold on. Why? Because you're both sent and are to send. Wow. Just you close your eyes with me? I want to just declare God's scripture over you. I'm just, all I'm going to do is read scripture over you. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying about in our bodies the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our bodies to Woodstock, to Cherokee County, to Metro Atlanta. You see, Paul says, death is at work in us, but life is at work in the city. Death is at work in us, but life is in work in those you minister to. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, yea, though in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us I know in whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to keep that which is committed to him unto that day listen to me DP we are chosen you are chosen you are chosen you cannot fail we cannot fail God's purposes remain steadfast his spirit remains available his love will be shed abroad in your heart I'm struck down but I'm not destroyed I'm persecuted but I'm not forsaken and I know in whom I believed. And so through, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God had willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, Satan grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fall him into a pit for eternity. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth the spirit and the gift are ours. Through him who is with us sideth, let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom's forever. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.